You have to invite her. She's already there. Yeah. Whoa! Welcome back to another week. This is an exciting time. Well, it hasn't been such an exciting time for Rebecca. No, it hasn't been exciting. But we are back another week. And um, this week is no none other than the Summit Part Two, and the first one was so excited, we exciting. We thought we would have everyone back again, and we're setting up the show. Um, let's see here. Okay, so we I think got we got Genevieve, we got Amy. There's Joel. We got Amy, and there's yeah. All right. Let's see. Hang on. We just got to get Joelle as well, the speaker. Yeah. Well, but yeah, I hope everyone out there had a great week. And thank you again for joining us. This has been an exciting season. Um, we've had some challenges this week. So, Rebecca, why don't you just kind of just tell everyone just uh, until we, everyone gets onto the show. Why don't we uh, why don't we just tell everyone how your week was? So first things first, our, we are we were graded academically. Um, for the OCD podcast that we did, and we got an A, so we are super cool academically. <laughs> um, the podcast got an A, so there you go, everybody. And um, this week is the same as last week. I mean, Latuta is still a bitch, and it's just not working, and um, I have to wait two weeks before I can see somebody, so... Do we know this person? VF8DXFKKKQG? No. Wait, what does that mean? I don't know. But uh -huh. we need to get Jolie. Joelle. Joelle. Sorry. Yeah, I, inv I invited her as a speaker. Okay. Yeah, she should be popping on any moment. Okay. Yeah, so welcome back to the Summit Part 2. And, um, and so, honey, of course, we're all like, you know, it's really sucky that you had such a bad week. And uh, a bad couple weeks in um, switching your medication. But we definitely want to uh, get into the show because we have two and a half hours. Remember last time what mm -hmm. happened? Yeah, and, cut us uh, off. So this week joining us is I'm going to introduce our fabulous guest co-host this week and dr amy d she is one of the first like friends of the show she included us in her book as a resource it was super cool that we could open up a book and see this show uh, uh, you know in, in it but hopefully what we're really doing is helping to make an impact and hashtag stories mm -hmm. over stigma so without further ado i will introduce amy and i'll let amy introduce the rest of the panel um and i'll just take a step back like i did last time um, um, Amy, thank you so much for joining us again this evening and agreeing to, uh, to, to, to guest host. Oh, I love doing this. You know that. Of course. I know. I'm so glad you do. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad we made it on your schedule because yes. you could be at like Armani tonight having a uh, fabulous meal in the little restaurant and shopping. So. Yeah. And at Armani, if I really, really stretched the budget and saved some player sales, I could probably afford socks. <laughs> Tell me about it. Like, oh my gosh, it is super expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but they'd be a really nice pair of socks. 
a really nice pair of socks. No, jo- Joel, I can't. You would have a nice pair of socks, and it'd be worth walking around barefoot just so you could see, <laughs> so everyone could see them. True. I don't know why I'm not hearing Joel at the moment, but I think Joel is that one. I think Joel is this. Yeah, I think that's Joel. So let me see. And let me invite that as a speak, Joel. Hold. She's Hold working on. on it. Joel, that's I think I think we just invited you. Ta-da. Ta-da, it works. I'm the VFB whatever. Yep, we got you now. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so everybody's here now. All right, so 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 everyone is here. All right, Amy, I am tossing it over to you. Fun. So, let's um get started by uh, meeting everyone. Joel, do you want to start? Oh, sure. Thanks just for Just introduce yourself. Me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Joelle Rabel-Melitis, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And um, I work with, specifically work with trauma mm-hmm. and more interested, more, I'm more interested in post-traumatic growth. And so the mm-hmm. and so what, so what do we do with trauma and how do we move forward from it? And I'm bi-coastal, as I think Stephen said. So um, thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming. Um Cleone, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Cleone Crawford. I'm an author, three time, um, two-time bestseller, um, a podcast host. I'm a nice. facilitator for a group that um, a mental health group that's online, mm-hmm. and um, I'm also a student studying mental health and addictions at, in college. Nice. So, what's the and, name of your podcast, oh, and what's it about? Oh, it's called Resilient Minds Three Sixty Five. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's about getting the resilient stories of entrepreneurs, professionals, and students mm-hmm. with mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. And they basically just share their, their stories of resilience and how they were able to come back despite having a mental health challenge. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, 27, uh, I have 15 years of um, experience, lived experience with bipolar. Thank you. Thank um, you. Genevieve? Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is mm-hmm. really awesome. I always love hanging out with you guys. Yes. Um, I'm an occupational therapist by trade. I uh, work in mental health in that capacity. I run a couple, you know, virtual uh, support groups. Um, we currently have a program that's called Empower Within. The real part of my private practice, the remote OT, is reaching underserved, vulnerable communities mm-hmm. um, and preventing cost from being a barrier to care. So uh, a lot of our services are either Medicaid or insurance based or very steep sliding scale in order for people to get care and not mm-hmm. feel like cost is a barrier. So, right. ac- you know, access high quality care. Cause I think that's kind of a big hurdle, you know, when it comes to mm-hmm. mental health is that there's a lot of people that need help or would like help. And then as soon as they see the bill, they're out the door. So we really work to absolve that barrier at um, my private practice, uh, which is the remote You can find out more about it there. Very nice. What city do you work in? So I'm Maryland based and I cover mm-hmm. the entire state. Um, but as soon as occupational therapy joins that compact, I could cover t- up to 10 states. So that's all in the works. But mm-hmm. right now it's predominantly Maryland based. Uh, we do mm-hmm. offer some like occupation based coaching, which allows us to move outside of state lines. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, the licensure kind of limits us to if we're billing your insurance specifically, mm-hmm. you got to be in Maryland. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, coaching and consulting can give you a little flexibility around state lines, but then, you know, no insurance and, you know, no accountability the way you do with a licensed professional. Um, so it gets complicated trying to serve everybody I know. So who else has joined us so far? That's everybody, Amy. Great. Um, are we expecting anyone else that we know of? Not that I know of. Well, I just I just found out what happened to Amy. She's at she's at the ER right now. Oh. I don't know if she's in it or or, just, uh, or you know I don't okay, know what's so going on. We're not going to have filmmaker. Mm. Another yeah. time. She's always yeah. fun Another to have time. around. Yes. 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 Okay. Well, if you hear from her again, tell her we're thinking of her and we miss her. I will. Um. That's uh, Amy McCorkle. She's a writer and filmmaker who focuses on making stories that are inspired by her own experiences of bipolar. Um, so this is the second part of the second season Bipolar Summit. We, um, early in the season, last year and this year, we get together a group of advocates, therapists, um, other professionals, other thinkers to kind of talk about major issues in the treatment of bipolar disorder and other serious mental illness. So some of the topics we're thinking of for tonight are different aspects of art and creativity around mental health, how music, film, and artists express their illness using creativity, um, how does prescription treatment impact how creativity is expressed from an artist. Um, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about policing and mental health and how that could get better. I think uh, both Joelle and Cleody have a strong interest in that. And then um, faith and mental health, uh, faith and mental illness. How does faith impact someone's ability to manage a mental illness and maintain good mental health? And the very relevant topic of grief. Due to COVID-19, individuals living with mental illness may be managing their grief with their treatment. And what are the challenges and successes of managing grieving when you have a mental illness? Um, that sounds exciting to me. Yeah. So why don't we start with uh, art and creativity, if that's okay. So just hearing from everybody here, what have been your experiences? How have you used art, music, other creative mediums in a way that expresses or helps to manage your mental illness or educate about it? Anybody? For me, for me, I actually, when I am manic, <laughs> mm -hmm. music takes on another level for me. Uh -huh. Um, I start to rap <laughs> and create music and um, I freestyle and I dance and I do, I do a lot of um, videos when I'm manic. Um, but music for me is my therapy. It's, mm -hmm. the, it's the thing that gets me through, the, gets me through it. Mm -hmm. like if I'm ever hospitalized, um, I need music. Like, mm -hmm. And that's one thing I have a problem with is some hospitals, sometimes they say that you can't have your phone, mm -hmm. uh, which basically is your music. And for, right. for me, like many hospitals are very quiet mm -hmm. and they don't, um, it's not like they provide, there's music there unless there's a television or something like that. So right. for me, music is my therapy. It keeps me, it keeps me, it just keeps me going. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually wrote a book about, my experience with music therapy mm -hmm. um, where I didn't know 
I didn't know the term, coined the term music therapy until I went to a hospital in Montreal where they actually mm-hmm. had music therapy sessions where people were able to sit around in a circle and um, we were able to take different instruments and we were able to just um, play different songs and sing different songs. And so, yeah, I, I, for me, music is very powerful and very important mm-hmm. to me. It's um, the, the lyrics are very important. It um, speaks into my, into my mind. It calms me down, mm-hmm. but it also revs me up. So, mm-hmm. so I have to be very careful the type of music that I listen to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you so, nailed it with the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. That's an awesome point because I can remember even when I was de- having children and delivering, like music was what got me through birthing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I would catch a little flack on what playlists that were helpful to me. I feel like the <laughs> nurses looked at me a little sideways, like, are you seriously listening to Nicki Minaj right now on blast? But I was like, yes, I am. And like, Look, I am in a hell of a lot of pain right here. I will listen right, to what right. I want. No judgment. Listen, for my daughter, that song Boss Ass Bitch was playing on loop. I'm sorry. It was what it was. I needed it. It was her and I. It was a pandemic. My husband could not come. And music was, like you said, my lifeline. Or when I was Mm -hmm. in the hospital with my son when he was really sick, um, he had pneumonia. They had a music therapist, like you said. And they Mm -hmm. came in. And it's one of those moments that, you know, felt nice in the hospital, Mm -hmm. you know. And they let him play with the tambourine and just make some noises. But... Music is a lifeline that needs to be part of healthcare mm-hmm. in a different way. So I'm really glad you brought that. Thank right. You. And, and I feel like it's really underestimated just from my experiences of working in a psych unit. Um, you know, sometimes I do. It, I'm not a music therapist trained, but, you know, we would have a, a group where we just played music. And, you know, as far as groups go, it was considered pretty much of a soft option. Like, especially when I first started doing it, they're like, oh, she just doesn't feel like group today she doesn't feel like you know teaching group or running a group so she's just going to do music so she doesn't actually have to do any work and it really took a while for people to see that there were some actual really valuable results of that right right and i love that i love the part with lyrics too Uh i've used that in session and and when i was running groups too and and having people write lyrics and create their own to process what they were going through Mm -hmm was really powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, because music is, it's poetry, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it speaks to the soul. So um, if you can get certain, there are certain songs that when, when you sing them out loud, you can feel it actually ministering to yourself. It's speaking mm-hmm. to, it's speaking to your, your mind, your, your experience. Um, for me, music was my best friend. Because um, there were times when I felt very misunderstood having bipolar disorder, but music allowed me to feel like I could connect with them, with the with this with the singer. Mm-hmm. I, I, like it gave me this. It was this international language that we both could speak, mm-hmm. and we actually I actually felt understood. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I loved about music. Who's your favorite artist? Or uh, top top song, or because it's like I love the connection. Like it's like like because when you were saying that, I was thinking of like Olivia Rodrigo has been really big lately. Mm-hmm. But some of those songs, like Driver's License, for example, like I I play guitar, and so a simple song like that, I can chord, I can kind of ping, and sometimes being able to just like belt. 
therapeutic in and of itself. Yeah, for me, the song that I love, which I I had um, called one of my companies, um, named it, it was Happy from Pharrell. Oh, I love um, that song too. Yes. Yeah, that's my favorite song. Like that's one of my favorite songs. I just, I, I that song actually took me out of my depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I played that song for one month straight. No other song, just that song. Uh, when I when I first learned about it, um, after hearing the Academy Awards, I heard that song and I was just like, "Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I'm gonna be happy one day. I'm not happy today, but I'm going to be happy." Mm-hmm. So I kept playing it until I actually was able to connect with the song mm-hmm. for about a month. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's like that repetition, that reminding yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like all these coping mechanisms we're always, you know, talking about in therapy, I feel like. It's mm-hmm. like you just said, like repeated practice. It's not going to work the first time. may not work second, third, fourth time, right? But it's mm-hmm. that repeated going back to it and insisting in that like rewiring of your neurons. Like, I'm going to get there. I will mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Has anyone else here listened to uh, Ava Max? Ava Max. She writes a lot about mental health um, and the feelings. And she's got this one song called So Am I. And it's a complete angsty bop. Because, like, the stuff she's talking about, you know, she gets real. Like, I feel dark. I feel damaged. I feel messed up. But the whole refrain is like, you know, well, so do I, indicating, you know, you feel dark and you feel damaged and I do too. And it's okay and we're going to be okay. I haven't heard from her. What's her name again? I would love to look her up on Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, Ava, A-V-A, Max. And this, uh, my favorite song of hers is uh, So Am I. So Am I. Uh-huh. I will definitely check that out. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's powerful. It was about all I listened to for two straight days once. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I, you know, it's funny. It's, uh, you know, I can... Sometimes my mood will dictate the type of music that I listen mm-hmm. to. Exactly. And I have such a wide library of music, you know, that I will listen to, whether it's, you know, old traditional sort of gospel, soul, jazz, house music. It all depends on what mood and what I need to be fed. And I mm-hmm. feel like sometimes music connects me to the greater universe, as it hippie does. as that may sound. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I think music is life and so many ways Mm -hmm. and that's why i'm always careful about what type of music i put in like Mm -hmm. i can't listen to a whole bunch of like you know booty clapping music you know where you know (laughs) jiggle wiggle 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 i can't do that like emotionally it can't or depressed music like i have to have music no matter what it is what genre it has to be like uplifting and uh and just and and speaks to my soul so i I feel you on this ava max like i'll pick Mm -hmm. her up yeah Mm -hmm. Okay. So what about um, other artistic media? Has anybody used or found visual art or film, anything else to be helpful? I would say film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would video, I, I just love, like I would go on to, what do you call it? Um, staycations. Mm-hmm. And um, just, you know, touring the city and I would just video different things and mm-hmm. post things on Instagram, like lots of videos. And unfortunately, when I'm manic, the videos are a lot of videos because I have a lot to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's just funny when you're manic, everything is heightened. 
Um, but um, yeah, so for me, film, and then I, I was a fashion designer before mm -hmm. in my former career. So I used to um, design clothing. Um, so I was very creative that way. And I also like to do collages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like to do collages. So was the fashion design something kind of separate from your mental health? Um, did where you were at um, with your bipolar disorder affect like what and how you designed? Um, I would say it was separate. Um, mm -hmm. I, I did, I started fashion um, design in 2007, just a year after I was bipolar, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure if that, I'm not sure if they're connected, but I think they were separate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. no. But I came up with different cool designs, um, even if I'm, I was manic or so. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. What about everybody else? What uh, other artistic forms, artistic media, have you found, you know, helpful, supportive, expressive? You know, what's interesting is like digital uh, mm -hmm. nowadays, since like I'm thinking about like, you know, especially the youth that I work with, mm -hmm. they're not so much about the like old school, like paper and pencil kind of art or mm -hmm. cutting even, but we do like vision boards via Google slides or uh -huh. we do, you know, they'll, they'll create digitally in those type of realms and like Jamboard or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that often creates that platform, like you were saying, you know, for them to start talking or sharing, because sometimes it's like the words are just too heavy, you know, mm -hmm. so doing or even just engaging in an art art activity makes it easier to then talk about it, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, and then I don't know where video games fit in. But I lately in, in therapy, it's like, this to me is a wonderland, because yes. you learn so much about people. Mm -hmm. They're so much more comfortable, especially again, the youth, you know, Yes. Uh, especially male youths that I've, you know, that would normally be non-communicative. You put a video game into play and I don't know how that fits exactly into art, but I feel like it's part of their expression. Well, oh. video games, like there's actual research that certain video games can actually help reduce symptoms. Like just lately, um, it's been a big thing on Twitter talking about Tetris and that there's a few research studies now suggesting that can, it can actually help treat intrusive thoughts in PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And there are a couple company, there are a couple video game companies that are making video games specifically to help treat mental illness, like especially practicing coping skills and things. There's even one called Hellblade, where the main character is learning to distinguish between real life challenges and hallucinations. Yeah, I mean it's such so. an easy access again, uh -huh. you know, accessibility. But it takes a shift of view towards it because mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of families, you know, they're trying to limit screen time, limit uh -huh. video game. They're afraid of that addiction component. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when I look at it, it's like, what do we not like about video games? We don't want them isolated. You know, you don't mm -hmm. want, I guess, in any expressive medium that you're not socially engaging and you're isolating yourself. So as long as I always say, like, join them in the game, see right. what they're doing because it's a talking mm -hmm. point. You know, mm -hmm. if they want more game time, great. That's a conversation starter. Let, right. Let's work on negotiation skills. There's so much ground for growth mm -hmm. if we're not afraid of it because it's new and different. Or social media itself, like you brought up, like TikTok. Mm -hmm. It's like if we can't keep up with what is meaningful to mm -hmm. the individuals we're working with, I don't know how impactful we can be. You know? Exactly. And like, with video games, who plays video games by themselves anymore anyway? Most video games are played online and there are other people there. So, you know, especially with COVID, that's how they're hanging out with their friends. 
Yeah, that's a that's yeah. Right. That's what that's how that is how they socialize a lot of the time these days, especially when they, you know, can't go to school, can't socialize the way they usually would. We noticed that when um, the school shut down here in Maryland last mm-hmm. year, that you know, the two our boys were very isolated, mm-hmm. and it was just them. And then we figured out that everyone was online playing video games. Mm-hmm. So we um we actually upped their screen time a little mm-hmm. bit because. That's that's where the socialization was taking place. Right. Yeah. And there's so much opportunity for like simulation. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like a lot of times when I'm working with clients, because I do predominantly telehealth, I can't unfortunately go to a grocery store with you or do these real world like public transportation use or mm-hmm. any of these things that we would do, you know, if I was there. Yeah. But in the video game, you know, we have opportunities to practice sequencing and planning and work on those executive functioning skills. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I have students and one of my students brought up, well, okay, who cares if they can do it in the video game? Will it generalize to real life? Mm -hmm. And then I watched on Netflix that countdown to greatness, Mm -hmm. a really good little mini series about that inspiration for, and it said, you know, how do astronauts train? They don't train in space. They train Mm -hmm. in simulated environments essentially like a video game how do these professional pilots that like do all these tricks and stuff a lot of times it starts in a video game so there is generalization from Mm -hmm. that virtual world into the real world so i mean again it's accessible it's there it's meaningful to them Mm -hmm. i I think we shouldn't shy away from using it for a whole bunch of different reasons Mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean that for example parents shouldn't kind of monitor for safety um keep an eye on online bullying stuff like that but you know you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater you don't decide that because there are some risks that need managed you know you throw gaming out the window entirely yeah and you join them like again yeah. go there with them you're worried mm-hmm. about what's happening cuz you know like Roblox is a perfect example yeah i go in there sometimes with the kids and there are a whole bunch of live players that can do some very messed up stuff yeah. Thank goodness that then you have a therapist with you that can help explain what's happening to the child, you know, or that mm-hmm. person's not playing nicely or, hey, this again is a situation that may happen in real life where people don't interact nicely with you. How do mm-hmm. we handle it? How should we respond? Mm-hmm. To me, it's all just an opportunity. But like you said, it's, you know, we've got to kind of uh-huh. tease out the nuance. Right. So how does prescription treatment impact how creativity is expressed? Like, how many of you have expressed creativity? Have you ever had any concerns that being on meds or any other kind of treatment would block your creativity? It's, it's, it's such a great and poignant question because mm-hmm. I, I get asked that a lot. And I think about, you know, I was a dancer for 22 years and mm-hmm. before being a therapist. And, and I think those moments where I was really going, you know, in my own head or in my own trauma and, and trying to connect with the role and connect with the, what I was supposed to be doing or even in rehearsal versus those times where, you know, I was on top of the world, right, and everything was great. I think it, it, it's hard to figure out where to stop and start. And then when there's this form, formulaic, like you said, prescription, whether mm-hmm. it's medication or medication management and therapy, we forget that people are holistic mm-hmm. and, and it's this mind, body, spirit and, and trying to look then at how do we interject creativity and, and also provide good mental health support and have people have good mental health, right? It's just, it's, it's such a daunting, it's such a, 
it seems like a daunting problem, and yet it, it seems easy, if that mm -hmm. makes sense at all. Yeah, but, but like, yet you have a lot of hosts, I mean, a lot of artists out there who say, you know, they refuse to get on medication for mm -hmm. because they feel like it alters their level of creativity. And we mm -hmm. always, you know, I think we've mentioned it before in the past, even like Kanye West and other artists, uh, mm -hmm. you know, refuse to like, you know, get on medication with their depression. I mean, and I mean, look at Kurt Cobain. I mean, had he been on medication and in therapy, perhaps he would still be with us. Um, you know, and the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. I don't. I, do, I mean, do you think? Do you think, Stephen, that it's it's this tortured artist trope that people that, that people aspire to be, or do you think that it's really just a fear of of losing that sense of, of self? Right. That's a very good question. You know, I think I think it in part it's. It's sort of like you said. It's it's playing to the uh, the artistic stereotype or maybe archetype. You know, whatever they have in their mm -hmm. mind, whatever it means to be this angsty artist mm -hmm. that is just struggled. Uh, you know, struggling and just in pain. Um, uh, you know, uh, Jackson Pollock, mm -hmm. for example, or you know, I mean. Oh gosh! If you, I mean, you even go and look at you know, um, Rimbo, um, mm -hmm. who was an um, a European uh, poet. You know, if you, look, I mean, you look at these artists. You know, you don't. Part of it is is it sensationalism, kind of not to get really dorky. Like uh, we've talked about it before, kind of like Thoreau mm -hmm. um, being in Walden. You know how he wasn't really when he was writing the book. He was spending his evenings with having an affair or at least going to Elizabeth Alcott's house. So he really wasn't living on off the land. Well, he was, but he wasn't. He wasn't really out there. So the part of it is like, what part of that is sensationalism and the story that mm -hmm. we want to tell that fits the narrative? Or what part of that is real? Mm -hmm. And I think in the case of like someone like a Kurt Cobain, mm -hmm. you know, who took his own life, or I mean, um, I mean, gosh, the list goes on and on. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, of indivi those individuals have real stories and they sang about them, mm -hmm. but no one really paid attention to the warning signs right. or they did, but perhaps money influenced them and had people overlook it. Um, Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. Yes. That too. Yeah. Him too. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of missed. I missed that band. I missed Lincoln oh my Park. God. Too. Yes. Yeah. What a great band. Oh, and then also, I mean, if you think about like even people who maybe not killed themselves, but think about uh, what is it, Scott Weiland? What was his name? He's from Stone Temple Pilots. He recently died. Mm -hmm. uh, he was the head singer. I mean, he fought addiction his entire life, but he's a mm -hmm. brilliant artist. So. I think in some cases it's true. The artists are just flawed and full of angst and pain. Mm -hmm. But then there are a lot of people out there who are using that to like ride a wave for their career to mm -hmm. make it to make themselves appear to be that angsty artist or maintaining themselves in that space without getting treatment and capitalizing off of it. Or maybe not. You know, it depends mm -hmm. upon who it is. You know, how many other Kanye Wests are out there? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And then like with Kurt Cobain, you know, that was the 90s between grunge and 90s goth glamorizing damage and mental illness was a huge trend. And that lasted well into the 2000s with Twilight. Mm. So for a long time, you know, damaged was sexy. Damaged was, you know, the romantic bad boy. 
And it's not like that was invented in the 1990s. There was, you know, Lord Byron 200 years ago, um, you know, messed up and sexy is a trope that keeps coming up. I mean, yeah. I mean, you look at, I mean, Elvis Presley. I mean, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh. I mean, the list, I mean, the Beatles weren't exactly behind closed doors. They weren't exactly healthy. Um, You know, yeah, the list goes on and on. So you get the romanticizing of it. Yep. So, I know. Yeah, that's, I mean, so, that's very, go ahead, Amy. I'm sorry. Um, no, so like, look at, you know, we've been talking for a few minutes about the dangers of kind of romanticizing or glamorizing mental illness to the point that somebody doesn't want to get treatment or just an artist with a genuine concern that they won't be able to work in the same way if they get treatment. What have your personal experiences been? If you want to share them, um, with medicine, creativity? I would say um, for me, mm-hmm. when I was a fashion designer, um, one of the problems with the med- some of the medications that I was taking, like for instance, mm-hmm. lithium. Uh-huh. Lithium, would give you, lithium would give you the tremors. Uh-huh. So it would mess with my ability. Like um, I started to shake a little bit mm-hmm. um, and it would mess with my ability to, to sew because... Oh. You have you have to be when you're sewing. You have to be very um, very careful mm-hmm. and with the, with the fabric, and you have to have like good eye coordination and and when some some medications because of the side effects would actually affect your your ability to to do the job. Mm-hmm. And um, also another thing that I find with some medications, some medications actually. Um, um, cause like I, I was a really good student and, but, and I used to read a lot, but now I find it it's very difficult for me to read and remember and retain the information mm-hmm. because I think my memory is kind of lost. I don't know if it's age, <laughs> I am 40, but I don't know if it's age, but, um, I really believe that my medication has played a part in my memory loss. Mm-hmm. Where there are certain things that I just can't, I just don't remember, mm-hmm. and um, and I can so I can understand why people would say I'm not taking medication because it's going to mess with my ability to to create mm-hmm. or to to function, on uh, and also uh, a lot of these certain jobs require a certain amount of energy, and if you're taking medication that's putting you to sleep for 13, 14 hours, what can you really do? Mm-hmm. In the days, so I I I understand why people would choose not to take medication because mm-hmm. it's messing with their ability to function. Yes, and honestly, even just what you said about tremors affecting your ability to write or draw uh, or sew, I had not even thought about that angle before as a check on creativity. Yeah, me neither. I, I that was that's interesting. Yeah, that especially from like an occupational therapy perspective, it's like inhibiting your fine motor coordination and then getting mm-hmm. in the way of your, your purposeful activities. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, that right there is like a, you know, set up for like a continued impact on your emotional well-being in right. and of itself. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And you say it's like, here I am ready to like call Kanye out and say, look, buddy, go get medication. Mm-hmm. It's already cost you your marriage. It's not going to cost you your career. And then now we talk about this and tremors and I'm like, 
Oh, wow. He's a singer. Tremors wouldn't. Well, I don't know. Maybe Tremors wouldn't let him play the piano or. He doesn't play the piano. I don't know what he does, honestly. But. (laughs) It may sound cool with like the auto tune, you know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. And maybe it's maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, so this is outside my lane. But maybe it's just having the the right medication Mm -hmm. you know so many people i think they they get put on something and it doesn't work for them and so then it they they give up it's you know it's just it's too hard as you know rebecca you know yeah it's just too hard a lot of people Uh, give up when the when the first dose isn't the right dose i mean mm -hmm. my brother is a perfect example he got put on lithium and he didn't like it and so that was it like we weren't going to try anything else we were just done because all medication makes me feel like this in his mind. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people give up at the first shot out, but it's also, I can understand why, because mm-hmm. when it doesn't work and you have to go through like what we're going through, it, it sucks. Like mm-hmm. this is awful. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. wish this on my worst enemy. You know, it's right. like you're taking this medication and it's not doing what you want it to do. And it's a lot of work to try and find the right kind, you know? Right. Right. Med, right dosage, right stack. And that assumes that you don't have any physical problems so that you have to manage medication interactions from those. Yeah. And, and then, you know, and not to mention the side effects that you Mm -hmm. get um, from medication, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe the medication is perfect and it works wonders for you, but now you've got all these weird freaking side effects that you Mm -hmm. don't deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one for one thing, it's like um, with the medication, everyone usually gains weight. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. So if you're somebody who, let's just say you were um, a physical trainer mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. as a profession, you now gain. Yeah, I know. With the weight gain, I mean. And sometimes you don't even have the weight gain, but you have it to where you can't lose weight. Like mm-hmm. right now, like I'm doing everything right and Steven's doing the same thing. And yes, males lose weight faster than females. But I mean, he's lost 40, almost 50 pounds now and I've gained five. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I go to my doctor and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. She's like, it's probably your meds. Like, yeah. you know, they may not make you gain weight but you might not be able to lose weight on them Mm -hmm. and that's so hard like when you're in the same house and you're both doing the same thing and then it's working Mm -hmm. i know girl i just want to just recognize that is harsh Mm -hmm. i'll just remain silent right now but say (laughs) that it's not about just losing the weight she looks great physically she's uh getting more shape Mm-hmm. Um, to her and it's like each time we look at each other we're like wow I didn't even think that that was a problem the way you looked and now that you you're working out you've improved so yeah mm-hmm. she might not be losing pounds but everything she has is looking good it's mold- well and exercise is more than just losing weight like it's all good for your organs and stuff like that mm-hmm. so you know yeah and, but and it's, it's still like it's-, it's just it's kind of defeating especially yeah. when it's like the medicine that makes me sane mm-hmm is now preventing me from losing weight. So, yeah, and when you're both working towards like a defined goal like that, regardless of looks, like you said, it's just you're trying to progress towards something, and anytime you can't progress towards something, it's incredibly disheartening. Yeah, 
It is. That's true. But also, like, as hard as you've been exercising, Rebecca, you know, what has your doctor said about, like, how much of that gain is muscle? Like, are you seeing well, more muscle definition or anything? That's what Steven sees. He sees mm-hmm. more muscle definition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of that has to do with that, too. Mm-hmm. But still frustrating. Still like you said, you're still doing everything right and not losing what you want to lose. Still frustrating. Cleone, we're having a hard time hearing you. I'm you sorry. You sound like you're really far away. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. There you are. Better. There you are. Yeah. Okay, sorry. For me, I had spent, um, I would work out five days a week mm-hmm. and I ate well and I wouldn't lose, and I would lose nothing. So I'm at a point right now, I'm realizing that the medication definitely is affecting me. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm actually even looking at the the potential of seeing other doctors that can help me with either dietitians or or even weight loss surgery, possibly, because I'm, you know, like I'm doing what I need to do to lose the weight, but it's not, it's just not going. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so frustrating because... I mean, for someone who was working out as much as I was working out, it I should have been losing. Mm-hmm. But once, um, I think once I started taking an injection, um, the weight just flew on. I must mm-hmm. have gained at least I lost some weight, but then I but then I just just plateaued where I wouldn't lose any more, mm-hmm. and it was just frustrating to me. So yeah, it's so hard. Like I feel like when you're trying to like you know. Lose weight or, like I said, anything really, but it's like that daily, sometimes when something like that, it's part of your like daily, you know, you're eating all day, right? Or you're working out all day. So then you're like constantly thinking about this goal that you're trying to get towards and you're modifying your behavior, all these little steps that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then to see that nothing happened, you're like, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) I think another thing that people don't even consider Mm -hmm. is the fact, like for people who want to have children. Mm -hmm. Some of these medications will affect the fetus. Mm-hmm. For me, my medication, what I was taking, I think I was taking Motrogen. And it actually, when I was pregnant, I had to, we had to keep looking for clep, for, for my son to have, to have clep tongue or mm-hmm. clep lip or yep. something like that. It's Lamotrin because I was on Lamotrin when I was with, um, when I was pregnant with George Arthur and it's uh, the fears are cleft palate and spinal bifida. And we yes. kept having to have ultrasound after ultrasound after ultrasound just to make sure that everything was forming correctly. Mm-hmm. Precisely. So it was like a big fear. It's like that. So these are some of the people, reser- reason people have reservations from taking medication is because of how it's going to help them, how it's going to affect how they function and even reproduce. Yeah, or mm-hmm. even after. And, I know many women like after they have a child. So it's like first, you, if you know, if you, if you have to decide, make that huge decision about going on or off medication while pregnant, and then when you have the child, if you decide to nurse, that's an extensive period that sometimes could go, you know, a couple years. That still you may not be able to use the medication that does work and benefit you out of those fears and concerns. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it almost like cancels out the benefit. In and of yeah, I couldn't nurse. I wasn't because of my medication. I was not allowed to nurse. Mm-hmm. I had to give my son. I had to bottle feed, feed him, and it, it it was it felt very it was very defeating for me. It was something. It felt like something that I felt like bipolar stole that from me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My ability to bond with my own son because 
I, the medication I was taking, I couldn't even do the, the simplest thing, which was to breastfeed. And, and for, like, I, I'm not, I'm not saying it's, you know, like that's a, a game changer. No, but still you nailed that, it. It's like I, that, that right there, you said it so beautifully. Like when you said, mm-hmm. you know, that it robbed the ability for you to just bond, like, a, you know, feeding aside, it's like, Again, the thing that occurs daily over and over and over, you know, it's like you have this little reminder constantly. Mm -hmm. That's like an added part. It's not only just like a one-time thing, right? It's like then every time you can think about this, it's right there in your face. Plus, it doesn't have to be a game changer for everyone for you to feel like it's a game changer for you. That's completely valid, those feelings. Mm -hmm. Even if not everybody has the same reaction. Because, yeah, like, you know, scientifically, kids do just fine you know, on bottle feeding, but that's not what we're talking about. But like your personal experience is something that you wanted to be meaningful to you in a different way. And that was a real loss. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you know, we took the plunge and we, we went ahead and breastfed with George Arthur. Um, I could though. But she, I was on medication that I could. Yeah, but she mm-hmm. could, you know, and um, but what was what we did not anticipate was the severe postpartum mm-hmm. and depression. It was a quite an emotional experience after they, but they, they, both children. I mean, they expected it with George Arthur, but there's only so much you can do to prepare for it. Right. With Sebastian, mm-hmm. we were blindsided. Right. Mm-hmm. We had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. But they, because I had it so bad with Sebastian, they expected it with George Arthur. Right, right. And it did not disappoint. No, it didn't. Yeah, it didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, another thing, sorry, another thing that I hear from clients a lot is just, should I have children with this disorder? Am I better off not passing it on? Uh, what kind of suffering might I be kind of imposing on my kids? Yes. That's a big one. I mean, that's a big one. I sit here and I watch my children carefully and I'm always like on the lookout for a mental Mm -hmm. illness. I'm like, is that this them being a kid or is that them being mentally ill? And like, where do we draw that line? Right? Mm -hmm. Like my youngest is very particular about everything that he does. And it's like, okay, is that just, a personality trait is this OCD starting to come out mm-hmm. um you know my oldest son has ADHD and it's like am i to blame that he has ADHD or did he you know did he get that from his father like did i screw up my kids mhm i understand how that feels because my son um he has autism and I question whether it, ha- I don't know if there's any linkages between, you know, um, actually before I even had my son, I considered not, um, because after talking to my doctor, my doctor encouraged me to abort my baby. Oh, uh, yeah. That's not right. Ab- no, it wasn't. He encouraged me to abort my baby. And when I told him, and I, and I thought that it was the right decision to do, and I was going to do it, but I spoke to someone and they encouraged me not to, and I decided to keep my baby. Mm-hmm. And, um, but as a result of keeping my baby, my son, he also, he has autism. Mm-hmm. So it's another challenge that I have to deal with. Um, he's a lovely child, but it's also challenging. But mm-hmm. I, I understand 
why people will say that they may refrain from having children because they're afraid of passing something on to their child mm -hmm. and um or they're afraid that maybe their their um stability their ability to be stable that they're not stable enough to even raise a child and because it takes a lot to ra to to raise children and um even if you don't have a mental illness, but when you do have a mental illness, you know, there's, it, it takes a lot. Well, yeah. And you have to consider with bipolar, like you have to consider like, you know, you have this infant that you have to take care of, but now I'm depressed for a week. You know, mm -hmm. I, I can barely take care of myself, let alone this baby. Or, you know, you have bipolar rage and like, mm -hmm. what effect does that have on your child? And can you control that? And, you know, there's a lot that I don't think people, people think more, you know, I think a lot of people think about, am I going to hand it down? And they don't think about, are my symptoms going to affect them? And how do my symptoms affect them? Because it does, it affects them. Like, right. doesn't matter what you do or how good you are, it affects them because they're children. And it's like, how do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good point. You know, we we have always had a very open and honest communication between us and our children. And it's like, you know, we explained to them rather quickly as soon as they could really understand it, what was wrong with mommy. Mm -hmm. You know, they understand what's wrong with me. And that way, when I do have a bad day, I can just simply look at them and be like, I'm having a bad day. That works now because they're teenagers. But, mm -hmm. like, it was a lot to manage when they were babies. Right. And that's why it's so important that you have a support system. You can't do this alone. When you have a mental illness, if you don't have people around you that can help pick up the slack, um, I don't know. I don't know what you can what to say, but it's important that you have people around you. Because mm -hmm. you, you, you need the village. You, you're going to need the village when when you're at your low points, when you're not able to um, function in, in the best way. But there's also no guarantee that everybody who needs a village is actually going to have access to one. Right. That's yeah, true. Exactly. No guarantees that families are always going to be supportive. And, and, yeah, and, and, even, if, and, and even if you do, uh -huh. are, they, are they, you know, going to be the right kind of support, right? Or is it mm -hmm. toxic? Um, because even people who have have support around them that's not necessarily the support that they need so mm -hmm. you know it, it's hard mm -hmm. i think you have to be very you know careful when you're selecting your village mm -hmm. um you you can have everyone has their functions that their ability to the support that they can lend to you it's it's different so I think you just ha you can have support for someone who would listen to you, who would just you know just be uh, allow you to vent, or you have some people who would actually come and you know spend a night over your house and actually help with you help you with your child or mm -hmm. or cook a meal. So there's so many different types of supports, and I think if we actually just decipher what that support what that looks like. Mm -hmm. When we're when we're when we're searching for people, like you have to be diligent about it and actually have to try to reach out right. yourself. 
And sometimes I feel like they're just when you've already got so much on you, there's this whole process of trying to teach people how to support you. Like they yes. might like, even when you've got people who would like to, they don't necessarily know what to do or what you need to hear. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, when I, I had my son, um, my family would come over and they'd open up all the blinds in the house and they you know it's like oh you need to get some light and i mean now this is 20 years ago but uh and i the minute they left i shut everything down again and i I just wanted it dark and i i couldn't explain what i was going through at the time you know and i would get oh it's just baby blues it'll pass and it it took therapy it took a lot of therapy and a long time to finally be able to articulate this is what i need from from you to help me here because I'm not like what you're what you're doing is lovely. It's not helping me, and I didn't know how to ask for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's, well, that's why it's important to be become your own advocate. Yeah, and sometimes like you know, people are coming over and doing their best, and it's like you almost feel guilty to be like, I, "That's not what I need." Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Like right. they're trying their hardest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because they absolutely, and I would I would feel you know I I'd feel so guilty. Um, you know, and so I wanted to help, but I didn't want to help. And I, I wanted to isolate, but I knew that wasn't right. Like I just, I felt like I couldn't win. And it was so like postpartum depression was so deep and dark and it was so difficult. And then trying to figure out, I don't even know how to be a mother. And, and at the, you know, at the time I had a master's in education and I'm, and and I taught parenting and I didn't know how to be a mother. And Mm -hmm. I just felt like no matter what I did, there was no way I was going to be able to to break the co- code on this, and mm-hmm. and it it took it took time for me to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Well, that you figure it sounds like you figured it out because that is that is parenting sometimes like the one no win situation after another no win and and like it's like you just had a baby you're physically recovering from that the emotions are like all over the place like. It's very, it's, I feel like from the physical discomfort to the mental anguish, it's like, I don't know, it's not recognized enough of how it's mm-hmm. attacking you from all angles, you know, and then mm-hmm. even externally from yourself, there's this baby, like we said, that we have to keep the baby alive and we have to be there for the baby. And then there's your family members coming in and commentary and it gets complicated real fast. Mm-hmm. And of course, all you need to do is just meditate. Or, or pray. Right. Like you say, you have mental illness enough times. Somebody's going to come in and tell you to take vitamins and meditate, and you'll be healed. Yep. Just breathe, right? Just yep. breathe. <laughs> Just breathe. You're like, thing is that I have to do that. So now give me something useful. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. Somebody on TikTok knows exactly what will fix everything. Yes. Of course. <laughs> I didn't realize there were so many intelligent people in on TikTok, but apparently that's where thought leadership is. They're has all gone. an expert. Everybody's an expert. Oh, yeah. In it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're so smart that Yale and Harvard. Yeah, no, they're too. They're just too smart for those institutions. That's why they didn't get in. No, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, Yale and Harvard people don't know anything because they're all up in the ivory tower and stuff. What you really need is absolutely no experience, so you can work intuitively without all that interference. Right. That's right. Right. There you go. Right. That is a, absolutely it. The internet will tell me everything I need to know. <laughs> uh. So on that note, like you know. 
We've got mental health advocates here. We've got people um, with very different types and levels of experience. So for somebody who is a mental health advocate and who really wants to help teach people, help understand, help build community and things like that, you know, how would you differentiate? Like, what would you like to see happen kind of ethically around the different types of experts who genuinely do have something to offer? And what would you like to see happen with people who are just kind of like randomly throwing up TikTok videos that don't make any sense? What are your thoughts? Oh, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> I, I could go on and on and on and on and on, you know, five college degrees later. Um, you, you know, I think there's a really fine line and, and it's, and, and I'm, I'm noticing some very dangerous trends as, and as a mental health professional, that's concerning as an advocate. I, I, I kind of feel like, well, the more we're talking about it, the more we're talking about it, we should be talking about it. And, you know, it was interesting, Steve and Rebecca and I were talking about, you know, my diagnosis is not your adjective. I think Rebecca, if I got the quote right, that's yep. what you said. Um, which I love. And so like, where's the line? And, and I, I don't, yeah. Anybody else have an opinion? <laughs> I mean, I think it's great that we're talking about it. I think it's great that it's part of the lexicon now and it used to not be, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. Like, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of like just off the wall kind of stuff, but also, you see these TikToks and they're like, oh, I do this, this, and this. And then, oh, that's a trauma response. Like, is it? Maybe. Maybe not. But it might open up a window into therapy if you go to your therapist and you're like, hey, I saw this TikTok and they said that I do this because it's a trauma response. Like, maybe you didn't talk about that before. And now you're talking about it. So, I mean, there's goods and bads to it. And just like anything in the internet world, there's going to be misinformation and mm -hmm. you just have to educate yourself, I guess. So, so you can weed out mm -hmm. kind of the noise. The noise. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as, as a trauma expert, I, I'll tell you one of the things that's most concerning to me is quote, everybody air quote, you know, end quote, right. Um, is now trauma informed and they mm -hmm. have these, you know, um, trauma-based practices and being triggered is is part of the nomenclature and I it's it's extremely concerning because I find that my clients who who come to me after having therapy or they thought they were working with somebody who was quote trauma informed ended up doing more damage and so mm -hmm. you know I think there's some really fine lines between what we're putting out there and, and putting good content out there. And mm -hmm. like you said, you know, Oh, just do these three things and you'll magically feel better. Mm -hmm. um, but, but trauma starting to become this very sexy buzzword. And, mm -hmm. and just like you were saying, you know, with music in the nineties and it being sexy to be broken and sexy to be this angsty artist. Now it's sexy to have trauma. And I think that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. I think it also belittles the people who really do have trauma. Right. And I'm noticing in therapy, I've had a couple clients, a few clients actually recently who lasted like two sessions because they were thoroughly convinced they were really, really messed up. And, you know, I asked everything I could think of to ask. Uh, they had, you know, encouraged them to express their experiences, um, you know, let them know I was there for, for them for whatever. But they were just having normal grown up experiences. <laughs> <laughs> it was just normal growing up. I'm in my 20s. I don't know how to. 
um, figure things out. I've dated five entire people. Why haven't I met the person I'm going to marry? Kind of thing. Oh, like, poor thing. Like, honey, they came up into everyone getting with you, and that's not how life actually works. Yeah, they, that's not how life works. Don't say it. Nobody got a trophy. Well, they no. I'm saying they grew up in that time period mm -hmm. where everyone did get a trophy. We didn't. Mm -hmm. We didn't. I grew up in that time period. We didn't get trophies. No, I mean, no, no. Figuratively speaking, a lot of people did get trophies. Mm -hmm. Well, but I mean, like, they're just like, just because like, yeah, that's the, I think it's a side effect of like trauma is everywhere. And it's wonderful that it's getting recognized just how much there is. Um, but everyone is convinced just from like the trauma memes you mentioned, everything's a trauma reaction now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people who are just having normal life experiences are coming in thinking they've got a major mental illness. You know, my thing is, is why don't we take this time mm -hmm. or this generation, copy and paste, but paste them back during the Great Depression? Because, <laughs> I mean, if they think, like, I haven't found my loved one is trauma, and I'm not trying to belittle their issue, but what I'm saying is, is that what did that generation who grew up in the Great Depression, what did they do? What happened when those women were working and their husbands were off at war? Like, like seriously. Yeah, but I mean, like, their problem is just like, they are being convinced by the internet that, you know, the fact that they haven't found, you know, there's someone yet or that, you know, they can't always concentrate all day at work means there's something phenomenally messed up about them right. when wow. many times they're not. So they're just getting kind of almost gaslit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good word. I, By the I way, trauma is becoming more of a buzzword than is really good for a lot of people. Yeah. Gaslit. Yeah. It's, it's I think that's so right on the nose. Mm -hmm. And just what, like you said, this normal, normal development, we, we mm -hmm. tend to pathologize, right? And yeah. what I notice about, I, I, you know, the, what I notice about, about younger people coming up these days is, is things, terms are hyperbolic where we use them as diagnostic terms, trauma, mm -hmm. you know, narcissism, bipolar, people use them, like Rebecca was saying, as adjectives, you know, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I'm exactly. So, oh my God, she's so bipolar. Oh, I'm so suicidal. Oh, he's so depressed. And, and kids are throwing these diagnostic terms around as their as as their descriptors and you know so so how do we manage that mm -hmm. well and one thing that i noticed too is it's like you know there's a difference between depressed and sad and mm -hmm. a lot of people don't realize that right like they're like oh i get depressed all the time no you get sad there's a difference mm -hmm. you know there's a huge difference between i just feel down or i'm tired or just like not in it today and i'm depressed and they don't know that difference. And so they always, you know, they'll always be like, oh, mm -hmm. every one of my biggest pet peeves, everyone feels that way. Mm -hmm. No, they don't. No, they don't. I can promise you not everyone feels that way. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that just bothers me. Right. So. Do we want to roll with this a while longer? Do we want to move on to the topic of faith and mental health? What are no, people feeling? No, let's move. Let's move on. Okay. I like faith and mental health. <laughs> All right. right. Conversation is, this conversation is good. Let's yes. just keep, keep the bowl, just mixing mm -hmm. the, the, the recipe or the seasonings. I don't know what I'm trying to say. But. Move on to the next course? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Move on. To 
Yes. All right, yes. faith and mental yes. health. How does faith impact your ability to manage a mental illness and maintain good mental health? For me, that's very important. My faith um, is central to me being able to um, maintain it. Um, it allows me to realize that my experience, like, like I have a certain purpose and it's, it's greater than myself that, mm -hmm. that my issues are uh, that. Yeah. My issues are, it's bigger than me. And when I realized that it, it actually is a bit more comforting. And then also the importance of my faith community, mm -hmm. you know, the ability to leave my home, where I could be depressed and go into a community where I meet other people and actually be able to socialize and be able to even, if I feel depressed and I want to talk about it, I can actually speak to somebody on a mm -hmm. regular basis. I can create relationships. And mm -hmm. um, so there's the, the social aspect and then there's the, the faith, the, the, relig the religion or the spirituality aspect where you have this connection to this being that's bigger than you, but also helps you in your in your walk. Because for me, I'm Christian, so mm -hmm. um, that's the faith that I subscribe to. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, it's very important for me. Like, um, but also when I'm manic, um, it it gets a little heightened. My faith gets very heightened to the point that I think I'm a prophet, mm -hmm. and. <laughs> And I started thinking a lot of other people are prophets and, and, and it's just very, yeah. So it's just, interesting. I have a hard time when it comes to faith and mm -hmm. I have lots of questions when it comes to faith and it usually agitates Stephen a little bit because I mm -hmm. question a lot of things, mm -hmm. but if we are made in God's image and God doesn't make mistakes, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. why am I crazy? Well, the one thing that keeps me, when I hear that, the one thing that keeps me going is that there's a scripture that specifically says that he reigns on the just and the unjust. Basically, good things and bad things happen to good people and bad people alike. Mm. You know, it's like, um, I feel like it's like society determines which traits in humanity will be the ones that we should seek out to cure and which ones we can celebrate and it swings with the times right so i watched this thing i don't know what it was on netflix the other day that you know this guy said you know it, years ago um you know being gay would have been viewed as an illness that needed to mm -hmm. be cured uh -huh. and at the time society swung forward <laughs> right that didn't change something like diagnostically you know, to like 1986 or something exactly so now right. look it's something to be celebrated it's part of identity so mm -hmm. it's just a shift of perspective so it's like image and why then you know viewing it almost like a mistake um you know mm -hmm. what maybe god doesn't think it's a mistake maybe you very purposefully did make you that way and maybe instead of us always like you said pathologizing or trying to fix or cure you know it's like safety of course we're trying to keep people safe ideally mm -hmm. but celebrating the differences well, that neurodiversity accepting um, mm -hmm. that part, I just I like that point because I mean, the fact that what at first I, when I first became when I first learned that I was living with bipolar disorder, I questioned God a lot. Mm -hmm. I was like, why would you do this to me? Uh, you know, I'm smart. I'm this. I'm that. And 
and you give me this, you give me this illness. And then I came to a point where I realized that my illness is not just for me. Mm -hmm. It's also, to, it's for me to be able to connect to other people. If I never became bipolar, I would never have the amount of compassion and empathy that I have for other people who have mental illnesses. And it probably wouldn't like because of destiny and everything, it probably I probably would never be doing what I'm doing right now right. if I had if I didn't have what I'm living with. And um yeah, so that's that that's my You know, I have a I have a as, as someone who grew up, yes, I grew up in 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 the church and with a strong Christian faith, but I've been at odds with the church since I left college for college at 18. Mm -hmm. You know, and it has absolutely been for all the social reasons that you guys mentioned earlier and all of the judgment and all of mm -hmm. the the casting out to see and the change and I think the problem is not this your connection to your faith it is the execution of that faith to the mm -hmm. people right. and it is an immature faith leader and i think it happened i mean it comes out of many traditions especially for those of us who are african-american and christian it comes out of a southern tradition where religion was used to oppress people so people use religion for all kinds of things but just to back up a little bit i want to just say let's wipe all of that away no matter what your faith tradition is i believe that everything in this universe under the sun is orchestrated and divinely created no matter what your belief or religion is and people could say oh that's really hokey and progressive well it just has to be what it is because i'm not casting my friend who is muslim or jewish or hindu Exactly. or anything out because they don't have the same walk. I believe God manifests himself in multiple ways. With that said, I think where the Christian church went wrong is when they taught that you all you need is the Holy Spirit or all you need is God. When yeah. in turn, yes, you can have your faith and your connection to, to God, but God created medicine and therapy and everything under the sun. And when there's this disconnect or this adversarial view of medicine in the church, that's where it becomes toxic faith. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of how I, that's where I am. And I know a lot of my family will disown, or they probably know how I feel about it. And they, they know how my mother is always saying, well, you used to have such a good walk. I'm like, mom, who says I'm not? I said, you know, but the thing is, is that I'm not going to judge someone because they're gay or lesbian. I believe that gay and lesbian individuals should have children. I believe that mm -hmm. medicine is good. Mm -hmm. Why is that anti-Christian? Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing goes with mental health. When they tell you, when you have a problem, oh, just pray about it. Well, prayer and meditation has its place. We see that through ancient religions, ancient cultures. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Rebecca and I have this debate, and I always take one side. But I do agree with her in the sense that you have to allow a soul on this planet to have their faith walk in their journey on their own terms. But under no uncertain terms, does that mean turn away from medicine and therapy and all of these things that were created for us to get us through? That is not replacing God, but that is seeing the manifestation of God in so many aspects of society. And that's all I'll just say on that. I'll just. <laughs> no, you made some really good, strong points. I mean, one thing, um, one thing that they did 
which was a de- the church did to me, which is a detriment to my recovery, was they said they demonized my mental illness at first. The first mm-hmm. congregation that I went to, right, and um, they basically said, "No, don't accept that. It's 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 the devil. It's it. it's the devil. It's a demon." Yeah, I mean, you hear that all the time. I'm not going to claim it. Right. I'm not going to claim. Well. It already claimed you, so like, he can't I, do anything exactly. about it. I can't <laughs> run around and just be bipolar and just be like, I'm not claiming it. Like, that's that's toxic. Like, you know, yeah. I have a cousin in Virginia right now who's healthy, but she went through a period of time where she went to a church in Virginia that told her that she didn't need her schizophrenia medication. Hey. She didn't need mm-hmm. all of that. And you know what happened? She got off the rails or she yes. fell off the rails and she ended up you know, getting a, a terminal illness that she's managing now because medication is better. But at the time, we didn't know if it was going to be a death sentence because mm-hmm. she was having permiss- she was promis- promiscuous. She right. was not healthy because she and she had gotten healthy. She had gotten the treatment she needed. But this church where the person probably didn't even go to seminary school, hey. like told him, told her to get off her medication and let the Lord heal her. Mm-hmm. And they started laying hands and doing all this stuff. And then all of a sudden now she has lived a lifetime in a home trying to recover when probably has she had some more mature faith mm-hmm. guiding her then she would probably have lived a more fulfilling and rewarding life i agree with you because i mean in my first church I'm, i am very thankful for my current church which is a bit more progressive mm-hmm. because my first church um they just thought that i was crazy and um they kicked me out because mm. i was um i was uh creating too much trouble Mm-hmm. according to them. But I didn't know myself. I didn't know what was going on with me. Mm-hmm. And um, but then I found another church and that church when they they saw me, they saw my brokenness, the things that I was going through, and they embraced me. And they loved on me and they helped they they loved me into healing. So that I, I'm not saying that I'm healed, because I still have episodes. And they understand the episodes. And they're very practical. They talk about medication. They're not like I believe laying in of hands and praying has its place, but um, you just need to know, you need to, ha- that's why you have to have something that's called discernment to know the difference between when it's time to pray and when it's time for medication. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think that, you know, your, your, whatever your spiritual walk is needs to go 50-50 in or 100%, 100% in with your medication and your therapy. I think when and you find the right one that fits your, your, your convictions um, in terms of therapy, but I, I really do. And this is speaking to someone who just like, I never have time for therapy, but it's true. Like you should definitely. And he needs it. Yeah, of course I do. But you know, it, it makes me creative. If I go to therapy, I'll lose my creativity. Um, <laughs> TikTok has the answer. As you say to a bunch of therapists. <laughs> I know. I'm just intrigued the more to like, oh, yeah, we're hanging out. <laughs> um, I think the spirituality piece is this this mind, body, spirit. And, and God, you know, we we are all of these different things, right? And, mm-hmm. and so I always like the image of a bicycle wheel where there's all these different spokes and some of them are bent and the bicycle wheel still works. When a lot of those spokes are broken, the bicycle wheel stops working very well. 
Mm-hmm. And so we have, it's, it's, what do we do for, you know, for work? What do we do for pleasure? What, what do we, you know, who do we talk with? What do we take our medication? Do we go to therapy? What's our spirituality? Are we in tune with, with our own bodies? Are we in our own bodies? And, and so much mm-hmm. of, of mental illness, we're disconnected from all of these different parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So some of it is just getting back to, to these different pieces and, and, spirituality has a place it's not the place right Right. yeah you know you just named it too like this uh one of the programs we're running right now is like the eight dimensions of wellness and you were just Mm -hmm. basically going through them you know how social spiritual environmental i mean emotional there's all these components that make us whole and i think that ties back to the beginning of conversation where we were saying you know treating people more holistically and viewing them in a larger sense than just these defined elements Mm mm-hmm and sidebar, I mean, not not to disrupt this conversation, but isn't it sad what they're doing to Pete Buttigieg, Secretary Buttigieg, how they're giving him crap for 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 for, for taking paternity leave? Talk about what what his mental health is probably like right now. What he and mm. uh, and his husband they don't like him anyways because he's gay. That's sad. It is. Yeah, but anyway, it's like trying to teach men that it's embarrassing to be or degrading to be a caring father. Right. And, 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 as, and as Genevieve was talking about, you know, exploring this idea of your whole person, mm-hmm. like these two are living their best life yeah. and, and, and they're trying to like l- take on these twins that they've adopted and talk about a disruption to your entire being to have your own staff turn mm-hmm. against you and tell you that, oh, you're absent from the job because you're home trying to be a dad. How dare you? How dare mm-hmm. you? <laughs> well, right, paternity... I mean- Paternity leave is still very new mm-hmm. in the U.S. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, I feel like just from a gender point of view, yeah, it's anti-gay, but it's also sending this very toxic message that, you know, real men don't care for people in the same way that women do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That if you're that caring that you would actually put your job on hold for a while to care for a child that, you know, you're not as much of a man. I'm going to tell you. I mean, think about how people looked at you when you stayed home with George Arthur. Oh, yeah. No, people hated it. I mean, because I stayed home with Sebastian. And then when we had George Arthur, Stephen stayed home with George Arthur for the first couple years. And you got a lot of slack for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, was, I just wanted to you know, give a shout out to Thomas because he has been staying home, working from home, works full time. And minds those three children all day long while I am running off and, you know, treating um, all these clients. So, I mean, he really, for me, it was such an interesting thing. Like I stayed home, you know, for the first couple years with the kids when we had the first, uh, you know, two. And then uh, come the pandemic when his school, you know, had went virtual and he could work from home. It was the slow kind of shifting where I was like, oh, so I can kind of like work more and more and more and more now. (laughs) And he does it and he does it really well. You know, like he's able to do really well at work and take care of those three kids. Like I'm when I'm with them for like five minutes, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't make it, (laughs) you know, versus like I can work forever. But um, when it's sometimes I think the hardest job is just taking care of those kids. 
you know what? I'm going to invite you guys over. We're going to have a bonfire. I'm going to smoke some food. I don't know if you guys beyond meat, if you eat vegetarian or meat. I have it all. Well, we're and we're just going to just we like cook. Down. Yeah. We're going to let the kids go downstairs and tear up my house even more. I'm and just we'll- going to put them outside with the That's goose. it. Yeah. Throw them outside. And we all, like, that sounds wonderful. And we all sit around the fire and drink and put on music. Yes. Yeah. Well, let the goose babysit. Like, don't keep them in line. That's true. 100%. I am, count me in. I'm down. I'm telling you, Tom deserves a big hug for what he's doing. But it's yeah. amazing. But yeah. you know what? There was like this like weird gender thing uh, uh, when that happened because, um, you know, if I brought the kids to a meeting or they were in a Zoom, you know, thing and people could see them, I was actually told once, like, you know, it's profe- it's not really professional for you to have the kids versus uh, Thomas would bring the kids and they're literally next to him all day long. And he would be getting full time. Like, Whoa, look Mm -hmm. at you. Look at you taking care of those kids. It's so awesome. You know, I bring the kids and I'm somehow like, they have to like pull me aside as though I like went to work in like a bikini, you know, they're like, um, sorry to tell you. That's not really now. I no longer work with that company, but (laughs) I'm kind of off to me where I'm like, Oh, okay. So, you know, double standard. It's, Yep. It's kind of the same thing where, you know, you 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 see in our culture where if a dad is left with the kids, he's babysitting. Mm-hmm. But if a mom yeah. is left with the kids, she's just doing her job. Mm-hmm. And it's like dad's not babysitting. Like mm-hmm. he's doing his job. He's being a father. Like that is what fathers do. They watch children. You know, he's not doing something special special that he yeah. needs a gold star for. Yeah. He's he's doing what he's supposed to do. I mean, it is special in the sense that you're defying gender norms and you're teaching your kid on, you know, it, it, it unintentionally or not or whatever, but you're teaching them that it's okay to be compassionate and sensitive mm-hmm. and tender and caring as a man, where of course the, the, uh, the uh, the idea of what a man was just twenty years ago well would have like the guy you know oh my god Ward Cleaver would have passed out if he had to stay at home yeah you know or like Thomas like Thomas and I we were saying the other day we both come from families where our fathers like I mean if they saw what was happening in this house they would be like are you kidding me like <laughs> he's downstairs with three kids trying to work full time and you are upstairs you know running your business there like what a flip because we came from families where. The idea, you know, it was just like it was known that the woman would stay home with the kids or if you're going to work, then you organize the child care. But your career is definitely not the priority in this house. Like, just want you to know that. Like, you're on pause when they're grown and it probably still won't happen. But um, (laughs) I'm going to get you through this period, making you think me. Right. And, and and that's it. That's exactly why I want my kids to know that it's okay. And like I was with George Arthur from zero to five years old when he went to preschool. And the first time I dropped him off, now I know what a mom feels like when they have to let go. Because I literally was almost in tears. Like mm-hmm. it was just like, oh my God, I gotta let him go. And uh and you know what? It was it was a great experience, as hard as it was, but it was also a great experience. And yeah, I got crappy looks and stuff, and people were just like, Oh, woe is you. But no, I mean, you know what? I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So we're almost up to the hour and a half mark. Should we move on a little bit? Sure. Because I think oh, yeah, a few of us were getting excited about talking about policing and mental health and where we Ooh. feel like that should be going. Oh, so, hold on. Who wants to start us off? Don't. <laughs> okay, I so I know gonna... I was saying that like a lot, you know, I'm oh, seeing a lot on the internet about people questioning. 
Sorry, I had to. No. The audience wanted to clap. Go right ahead. <laughs> but I know that I was talking about how, like, you know, I've worked on a psych unit. I've worked in different community mental health um, facilities. You know, different community mental health agencies. I've done a lot of de-escalation in my time. You know, even with people who were very potentially violent in the moment, and I had lots and lots of really good coworkers, you know, who mentored me through it when I was just starting out and who were very good. And de-escalation in the mental health field is actually pretty common. It's a very common skill. There are even, you know, direct service providers and mental health techs who have maybe a high school diploma or an associate's degree. It's not an issue of education. They're out there doing this every day. But when you talk about that in the context of policing, should we be de-escalating? Should we be helping them manage their mental health skills? Everybody's like, this can't be done. This is never going to work. Yeah, I don't like how everyone's like, oh, that can't happen. Like, right. it happens every day. What are yes. you talking about? It can't happen. Right. I remember I had a situation. I had two situations with police where one, one situation went really, went really bad. Mm-hmm where I was tackled to the floor Ooh. and um, I was cursed at and sworn at and mm-hmm. thrown into a cruiser. But the second situation, they brought a mental health nurse mm-hmm. who's a police officer and she talked me down. And at the end of it, she was able to, um, I, I wasn't arrested. Um, I was, even though I was very irate, mm-hmm. I had calmed down. Mm-hmm. And they were able to resolve the issue without having me to be arrested or apprehended or whatever. So it didn't get physical. And I just think it's just the way, I think it's important that they have um, people who are skilled to be able to talk to people as humans <laughs> instead of as criminals. Mm-hmm. And because um, that's the first the first situation when I was tackled, I was seen as a, as a criminal. Mm-hmm. He he didn't see that I, I had an illness, that there was something wrong at the time. And he just kept aggravating me to the point that I, um, you know, I, I, I attacked and and then he, you know, threw me down. And it was really it was very traumatic. Mm-hmm. And then I had another situation where I was. I was clearly manic. It was clear. I was at the border and I was clearly manic. And um, I was trying to cross the border as I usually did. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, they said no. And I became very upset. And in that anger, I started spitting and ripping pages of Mm -hmm. this book that I had. And then seven officers, seven, came tackled me to the ground, took off my shoes, put a mask over my face, Mm -hmm. and basically did a cavity search on me because they thought I must have had drugs. Ooh. Yeah. That's horrific. It was horrific. It was horrific. And then they they shipped me back to the Canadian border with no shoes on. It was just... And the thing is, I think... When if you can if you're an officer and you have an idea of feeling when the person might be mentally ill, mm-hmm. there is a way to deal with it. There's mm-hmm. a way to talk to the person. Talk to them as a person. Deal with them as a human. Work with them. Spend mm-hmm. time. 
Don't mm-hmm. be so quick to criminalize. Mm-hmm. Not well, everyone's think, a criminal. I think the other problem with our police officers is they're not trained that way. Mm-hmm. They're, right. they're not trained that way. And in these instances, like, they have to make a decision and they have to make it quick and then stick with that decision. And I think that we need more training for our officers around how to deal with mental health. Cause they don't, they don't train, they, they train them how to deal with, you know, the public and the violent. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that's, that's part of, you know, the, the mental health reform and, but, but also the, you know, police reform that I think, you know, we're talking about, which is, you know, major police departments. I, I, I train for San Francisco PD and San Jose PD, and they bring me in to do exactly that, right? Mm-hmm. To talk about what what does mental health and what does mental illness look like? What does it not look like? Um, and then how, how do you work with that? How do you be compassionate? How do you have conversations that, that again, aren't escalating? And, and so much of that also starts with you know, people are human and, and what's their story. Mm-hmm. And also what's the officer's story They're they're you know, and, and that's, there's, there's good people, there's bad people. I'm not trying to make any kind of political statement here. All I'm saying is that reform it, it's, 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 it's complex and it's doable. We mm-hmm. have the, we have the resources, we have the skills and we have the ability to, to have, high quality training, require high quality training and require accountability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the money needs to go in the training. If you put them, if you train, I mean, officers, there is a budget there. Uh, they're trained for, they're trained to, you know, to apprehend, to serve and protect. But while they're serving, they, need to also protect the mentally ill. I think part of it also has to start with officer selection Mm -hmm. because it depends on in the testing process, Mm. you know, personality wise, um, who are they selecting for? Uh, I've got a, I've got an acquaintance um, who works for the LAPD and who um, was working on like the testing protocols for potential officers and he said that they're basically trying to select for healthy sociopaths, the kind of people who don't mind killing if they absolutely have to, but, okay. you know, won't actually go full Hannibal Lecter just for recreational purposes. And it's not working out terribly well. So this has to go all the way back to whoever becomes an officer to make sure that, you know, there are people who will be receptive to that. I, I think it also has to do with educating the public. Uh-huh. I mean... Everybody knows the phone number to 911. Mm-hmm. So everything becomes a 911 call. Mm-hmm. And 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 the police have to deal with everything that happens. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you have a mentally ill person who's acting out and having and having issues like maybe 911 isn't who you call. Like there are other people you can call. Mm-hmm. But we don't know well, like, like, those phone like, numbers. We don't mm-hmm. have those memorized. And 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 so it they kind of become like the catch-all. Like mm-hmm. they have to take care of everything. Right. Yeah, I like the like increased use of like mobile crisis units. But you mm-hmm. nailed it. 
what's the number? I mean, I guess you can Google it, but no, we don't know the number like that same way. And there are organizations like Mental Health First Aid and Psychological First Aid, they're teaching free classes in how to handle mental health emergencies. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, okay, so, like, let me, people, let, let me you, just play, play devil's advocate, Amy. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But are we not expecting officers to do too much? Or is this like, a matter of training? Is this a matter of training, tweaking the training? Or is it like, look, Dude, you hired me to be to serve and protect, but you didn't hire me to be a you know to, like to a to be a social worker or a therapist mm -hmm. on the spot. I have to make split decision, life or death decisions, mm -hmm. and I have to think about that. Like, mm -hmm. not that not that you know anybody who's having a mental health crisis is a threat, mm -hmm. but you still have to say, does the person have a weapon? What mm -hmm. is the person capable of? Mm -hmm. What's their background? I know nothing about them. I'm not defending bad policing. Don't get me wrong here. But what I'm saying is, is are we expecting an officer to do too much? What say well, you I guys? think that there's a big difference between, you know, a police officer who is untrained in that. And yeah, that's why maybe, um, you know, we need like social workers, therapists, even just ordinary citizens who've taken training in this kind of de-escalation, because it's not a particularly advanced skill. You know, it's about respect and knowing how to talk to people. So maybe we do need to give the, um, that job to somebody else, but make sure they're as on the spot as police officers. But there's a big difference between a police officer who's untrained in handling it and a police officer who goes all the way to straight brutality and an unnecessary level right. of violence. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we need to distinguish between those two and their separate situations. I think it's also uh, the importance about how offices are paired together when they pair, mm -hmm. when they put them together. If you put, if you're going to put an officer, don't put two people who don't know anything about mental illness mm -hmm. because I mean, one in five people have a mental illness. So it's mm -hmm. a big population. So it's not, we're not going anywhere. So you, if you're gonna pair, if you're going to pair officers, pair them mm -hmm. so that they're equipped and they're trained. Because mm -hmm. I remember, um, I re with my second situation that happened, I liked, even though I was aggravated by seeing and traumatized by seeing the police, mm -hmm. um, the mere fact that one of them, the officers, had on her vest was nurse. Mm -hmm. She was, she was, a, she's an officer, but she was also a nurse. She was a mm -hmm. mental health nurse. Mm -hmm. So I, it calmed me down a bit because I recognized that um, even though she is a police officer, she is, she is going to listen to me. Mm -hmm. And Cleone, where, where was this? Like what country? Cause I know you. I'm in Canada. This was, okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, yeah. Where in Canada mm -hmm. are you? I'm in Toronto. Nice. So I was born in Montreal and all my oh, family lives in Toronto. I love Montreal. I love Montreal. <laughs> I love Montreal. It's my second home. Oh my God. Yes. 
so you know shout out to the canadian love yes shout okay, out so, so 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 who's taking rebecca and i to kids to canada because we want to go we don't know what to do like so our youngest son has decided that canada is the best place in the whole world but he thinks oh, you've that raised him so are well a problem. i just want to just i just yeah, take no. a moment and let you know that you've raised that child <laughs> he, he thinks so that moose are a big problem like he thinks they just roam the city streets and like uh, they become an issue no. and i keep trying to tell him that moose are not that big of a problem in the city center no but he he really need he wants to go to canada he goes i don't know i just want to move there. the people just seem so the people friendly. seem better they seem better i'm like what like where did this come from it came from the truth <laughs> recognition of goodness that you cannot deny that canadian friendliness you know that's awesome yeah. okay sorry amy we digress not at all so like we we're talking about you know you know speaking of canadians and their friendliness we were talking about you know how best to kind of implement having people uh, as on the scene as police are, whether, you know, the, you have police officers on a squad who are trained in mental health, whether you send a nurse or a social worker or somebody else along with, that it seems like one of the big things that we all agree on is that we need to find a way to make the de-escalation, the mental health interventions as available as policing. Does that seem reasonable? I'd say so. Uh-huh. Okay. So anybody got any other thoughts on, you know, how that might happen, what some of the obstacles will be? I just feel like there are a lot of people who don't necessarily want to see that because they're too scared to want to see anything but violence. They just want to see anything sca that scares them get kind of slapped down. Mm -hmm. So there's also got to be a big public relations campaign around this. Yeah, it's the Definitely. shifting of that bucket again, right? Like mm -hmm. there's no lack of money and yet there's a high need for people to fill these positions. Like I yeah. love the idea of when you send, when you respond to a call that you send a whole bunch of different people, like send uh -huh. everyone, you know, you love to send the fire department for everything, whether it's a fire or not. So why don't we fill that fire truck with other professionals? You know, it's a great job opportunity. And if mm -hmm. there's money in the budget, but it's that it takes that redirecting of funds to make that. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I think it's also being able to distinguish you know it, what the calls are and, and if people's you know if if the people that are calling if they're in danger or they're in danger of hurting themselves and others or are they in danger of hurting the officers you know um it it, it it's such a complex problem and i think that I just want to be very mindful that we're not oversimplifying and saying, we'll just send, you know, send, send a, a social worker on, on, you know, every call that, that gets called. I think Rebecca, your, your point is well taken. We don't have the resources out mm -hmm. there or we're not making known the resources out there for people to call. Mm -hmm. um, and then the flip side of that is making sure that, that we do have officers that are trained to respond to the kinds of calls that they're getting. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, again, making sure that, that safety is, is, t is taken care of first, you know, and, and that de-escalation component. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I definitely, I, I definitely agree. And, and, and it is, you know, it's funny because when something becomes sensationalized and, and that's not to say that, you know, there are things that should be talked about. 
I think once it becomes something, the conversation and discourse around it, though good because it's bringing attention to some maybe areas that need to be improved, at the same time, I think the discussion can go far off in a, in like a poor direction if there's not a sense of reality that is also sort of included into the conversation. And um, I, I mean, I think that was a good point, Joel. And I think everyone here, of course, has made fabulous points, but, you know, it is complex. It's so complicated. And there's a difference between, I mean, like different types of law enforcement, whether it's state, federal, local, like, you know, county, in other words, you know, what's the levels of training and the levels of expertise and what's the budget for, for, for being able to provide these kind of, you know, community, I might call them wraparound services, mm -hmm. part of wraparound services, because, you know, law enforcement is a part of the community and the health of a community. So, you know, in, in terms of providing those services, like, how are law enforcement engaging, you know, with the community and what kind of resources are available? It's so mm -hmm. complex mm -hmm. and I don't have an answer for it, but I hope that, you know, we do get to explore this deeply here very soon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been on both, on both sides, sides of this where I have clients that are, you know, have had difficulties and, and struggles with the police and, and have been brutalized and I have clients who are who are police officers who mm -hmm. are struggling with, you know, with this same issue of, you know, we go on mental health call after mental health call and, and nothing ever gets resolved and the level of frustration with the failure of the system or we successfully take somebody in, we de-escalate, we get them the help we need, you know, they, they 5150 them and then two days later we see them out on the street again. And so I think it's, you know, it's... It's, it's very difficult. And, and then what's the agenda of, of what's the, the agenda of people being filmed? What's the agenda of the officer? What's the agenda of the person calling? I mean, everybody's got an agenda these days, right? And Absolutely. So, so where do we go with this as a society, as far as, you know, uh, and I, I'm not like, like you, Stephen, I'm not, trying to, to pick a position here other than to just say there's got to be this human element that we start looking at because we have to figure this out. Mm -hmm. We have to. Yeah. I mean, because Cleone should not have been, had that experience even one time. And, right. and, um, you know, and it is unfortunate, you know, that it went that far. I mean, for me would have just a simple takedown and with the restraint, would that have just been good enough, but I wasn't there in the moment and I don't want to be a Monday morning quarterback, you know? Um, but I do know it's wrong in my spirit. When I heard it, it's wrong. And how do we fix this? Because, you know, it's such a big issue, I and mean, we could dedicate, which I think we we will, we will have a show on this, the whole, probably multiple shows on um, on law enforcement. But as it pertains to on the other side with individuals with mental illness, I tell you, you know, we have to do something because mm -hmm. individuals who are in crisis should not be, um, mm -hmm. you know, you know, aggressively handled. Right, and I think also another thing I wanted to, to mention is. Let's say they do get arrested. What after? What happens after? Mm -hmm. uh, you know what I mean? Are they sent to the hospital or are they sent to jail and get a record? And I think it's important that 
when they do get a, if they do get arrested or they're sent to the hospital, um, there should be, there, when you get to the precinct or whatever, there should be um, the mental health court support type of people to help you with like the diversion process where you, you, you don't end up with a record for something that you should have been sent to a hospital for. Hmm. Yeah. And it, of course, that varies in America by state, by county, by region. Mm. I mean, different places are. It's. I don't think they're all doing the same thing, depending upon the. No, they all do something different. Yeah, I mean the mm. execution of that. I mean, Joel, you have more experience, but I mean, I I imagine that the execution is not consistent in such a country that's big as America. And you're right. It's it's different. You know, municipalities have different control and it, it varies from state to state and it varies from county to county within states. And, you know, um, it it's the, the rules change. Right. And then the rules change based on on politics. And so there isn't a there isn't this good we, we don't we have good industry standards of how people should be treated and what needs to happen and i mm-hmm. think everybody can agree with 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 that right and mm-hmm. and i say everybody intentionally broad brush i think the breakdown is 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 well it gets colored then by you know well who are you or what group do you belong to or what's your politics or what do you actually think about people with mental illness and are there even resources to send people to the hospital? And and I can tell you just from the areas that I practice in, 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 in several different states, many of the hospitals, you know, it's, it's people have to say, I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to kill somebody else for them to be held because there mm-hmm. are beds. Right. And so, I mean, there's so many failures along the mm-hmm. way here. It, it, it that it's it's frustrating i think as a provider and yeah. an advocate you know mm-hmm. and on the other end of that like yeah on the one hand you have to go say that if you want to get admitted a lot of times but at the same time even you know trained therapists are making you know really damaging rookie mistakes like your client says they have you know passive suicidal ideations or they do have suicidal thoughts sometimes you know, even professional therapists, sometimes you get them not doing a proper assessment and they hear the word suicide and they call for an ambulance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that right. happened to us yeah. recently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I, when I told my um, psychiatrist that I was severely depressed, she mm-hmm. knows that there have been suicide attempts in the past. And mm-hmm. her answer was go to the hospital, go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And Stephen and I had to look at it and it's like, you know, that I'm not there yet. Like mm-hmm. that would be more disruptive uh-huh. than if yeah. I just stay here. I just, I wasn't there yet, but right. that was her only answer. Mm-hmm. Because, it, because the, you know, at this point, be, you know, being sued is, is a huge, you know, it, it's a huge concern for therapists, right? right. Is, well, if I do the wrong thing, then I'm going to be sued. Mm-hmm. And so, so instead of taking time and saying, okay, maybe we, you know, maybe we need to look at a care plan. Maybe we need to step up your check-ins. Let's, what support do you have? Can we do safety planning? Can we send you to, you know, OT, right? <laughs> Genevieve, mm-hmm. like, like what are yeah, all well, the things that we can do for you? And mm-hmm. we just go, oh, we need to call 911. Yeah, you know what's like really the, the hardest part for me with clients is I have to say to them, this is a safe space. You can say mm-hmm. anything you need to me, right? But then I have to also say, but... 
yep. if you say you're going to hurt yourself or others, I have to take these actions. Right. And that is, to me, dismantles the first part of the statement, right? Like, mm-hmm. so if you can't even say it, so I try to have an open discussion about this where it's like, you know, if you do say these things, this is how I will have to respond. However, I don't want to, you know, inhibit you from saying it because sometimes it, I think it has a, a dual outcome where if you do need that help, at least you do know there's a place where all you have to do is say it and help Mm -hmm. come. The part that scares me, we know, is the individuals that are like, well, great, I was going to talk about it, but now I don't want to freak out the therapist, so now I'm not going to talk about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I think we don't talk about it enough. And so, you know, I'm super sarcastic, whether that's a good thing or or a bad thing. Amy, we could talk about that another time, but... uh, I'm super sarcastic too. I have no room to judge. <laughs> so I say to them, I'm like, you know what? This is not my first rodeo. Like, let, let's let have this discussion. And I'll be honest with you if I if I need to escalate this, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and ethically, what what's the right thing to do? You know, because there's always the legal answer, but that is not always the best one. And, right. and being able right. to just sit with somebody sometimes and say, you know, just say it, mm-hmm. just say it and we'll work through it. Um, and, and I think part of that, like you said, you know, good therapists make rookie mistakes. There's also a lot of, you know, crappy therapists out there. And, you know, I, I just, um, it, it's, it's really, it's really, it's, it's really fundamentally important, right. To develop that trust that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Say, I, I am reminded of the joke that goes around on the internet and people have made videos about it. People have made memes about it where it's, you know, I'm trying to be honest with my therapist, but not honest enough that I wind up in the hospital. Right. Yes. And as somebody coming from the outside, like you walk that fine line. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have to make, you should not have to make that jet choice, you know? Mm hmm. You know. Sometimes you have to, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, it depends on how much trust you have in your therapist, honestly. That's true. Yeah. Like when I'm having, you know, that conversation, you know, especially about this is when I'm kind of legally obligated to do a thing, you know, I kind of go through kind of a long process of just pointing out, you know, I do know the difference between, you know, suicidal thoughts and immediate risk. So I'm always going to ask you you know, about the level of risk before I jump to a conclusion. I'm not going to make the mistake of, you know, hospitalizing you because you just said you just had the thoughts. We're going to work on it. Mm-hmm. So I do try to bring that nuance in there. But I have to say, I learned that on the job. Like, you know, in five years of a doctoral program and honestly three years of a master's a while before that, I don't remember any of my teachers sitting us down and saying, this is exactly how you do a suicide assessment. Oh, wow. You know, there are people graduating with doctorates in psychology focused on therapy who have never just been sat down and said, this is exactly how you do, you know, a basic three-question suicide assessment. This is how you tease out the information you need to know if it's hospitalizing time. You know, we know the legal stuff. If they say this, you have to hospitalize it, but there's no real nuance or that skill being taught unless you get it, you know, on the job at a training or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, Wow. Hmm. Did anybody else who's um, gone to school for this have the same experience? Like, were you actually taught the nuances of how to do a really good suicide assessment? I think you nailed it. We're definitely not. We can barely hear you, Genevieve. 
Oh, shoot. There you go. Why. Now I much better. Okay. Okay. I was like, oh, shoot. I want to back you up because I, I totally agree that like in our formal education, it was lacking. It took you had to, you, you had to really pursue your own additional education outside of school, either through experience or specialty certifications mm -hmm. or continuing education you had to really pursue that. Mm -hmm. And you've already got, you know, the degree and the licensure. So it's really like, oh, my gosh, how could we miss this piece? that seems kind of essential. Uh -huh. I think it's a little freaky to realize a lot of what isn't taught in that general education when you first come out of school. Mm -hmm. That's why, again, getting a therapist that's hopefully been in the game for a couple of years mm -hmm. so they had a chance to get those specialties under their belt game changer you know it's it's state by state because because yeah amy i that was my experience too coming out of school my my i have a great a great staff and so my interns and associates actually have that training because now california mandate that you must have um suicide and risk assessment Mm -hmm. training before you can sit for your before you can actually graduate and, and apply for your postdoc associate number so mm -hmm. but it's but it's true but even then you know when training staff it's like all right let's go through this and you know when do you you know when do you make that call and um and at what point and you know, and I, and I say, you know, look, if, if I'm not freaking out, I don't need you to be freaking out. Right. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, how, let, let's go through this methodically and what, you know, here's what you're looking for. And there's, there's physical and nonverbal somatic responses mm -hmm. that people are going to give you that you're watching for. And we don't learn that in school. We don't learn how to observe and listen and then put things together and ask those questions. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, that's, that does take it's it takes the the training of a really good mm -hmm. clinician. And I think for me at least, like I do teach this, this to my students and I teach it at a community college. So like at least all my abnormal psychology students walk away with this. Um just because like so much is going on now, sooner or later they're gonna need it. And pretty much every semester since I've started teaching it, somebody has come back to me and said either, you know, I do have that sometimes and some of the resources you gave us are going to be helpful or I actually got a friend through this safely because mm -hmm. I knew that. It's really rare for me to teach it and not at least once a semester have somebody say, you know, okay, it actually came in handy and it worked. Wow. We don't talk about it. It's, it's the same thing with, with, mental illness right we don't talk uh -huh. about suicidal ideation enough mm -hmm. because it's this big scary thing instead of saying you know yeah sometimes you feel like you just don't want to get up mm -hmm. in the morning and th there's we pathologize it right there's uh -huh. there's some normalcy to to having those thoughts every once in a while mm -hmm. that's not an abnormal experience we, we right we want to put that into this box because it, it makes us feel better right us mm -hmm society. And I think also in a lot of cases into a box as to what kind of people have those thoughts. Right. You know, right. you know, we're respectable people who live in a respectable neighborhood. Nobody we know we, who we know would have that experience kind of thing. Right. Or like some of you said earlier, you know, we're religious. All we need is God. We don't have those experiences. We don't have to worry about those. You know what? Early on, if I can interject, uh, yeah. Rebecca had a uh, a psychiatrist, um, Ike Noichi, and he's one of like he's just a very good psychiatrist. He's done work with the State Department, mm -hmm. international he like works mental a lot health with work. Soldiers. Works a lot mm -hmm. with soldiers, but he told us a story about once he had a congressman 
and in a different situation, a congressman's spouse mm-hmm. crack mm-hmm. under the, whatever it is under the pressure of their illness and was literally, in one case, walking naked down the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue. And they, I mean, they, of course, I mean, everything was kept quiet. It was out in the media and all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they thought they were a giraffe. Yeah. And in one other case, yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought they were a giraffe. I, I, you know, if it weren't for the fact that they had good access to care mm-hmm. and people, I mean, and and maybe who they were, I mean, it could have been ugly. But, mm-hmm. you know, wow, it happens to anyone. Yeah, it but does. even and, – and when it comes to suicidal ideation, like, it's not talked enough about. But we also don't – we ourselves who are having it, we don't talk about it mm-hmm. because you're, you're, not suppo- you're not supposed to have those thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, like if if I was to tell my loved ones other than Steven when I was depressed, how many times it crossed my mind, like they would be rather concerned mm-hmm. and it would be a whole big thing, mm-hmm. you know, and and luckily I have Steven here and I can tell him mm-hmm. and, and I can tell my care team. But, you know, it's not something that we talk about even with each other. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's it's interesting when it happens because I I am not a health professional, but I've been with her enough to know the cues and I know when mm-hmm. she's really bad or not. Mm-hmm. And just because she has an ideation, um, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's, yeah, it right. doesn't mean I have a plan. It, it doesn't. Right. It, she doesn't have a plan. And I have to make, as her spouse, then it's my call. So, you know, when she was, when her, when her doctor was like, you know what, you need to go to the doctor. We need you in there to be evaluated. You need to be pumped. You need medication. They're going to give you all new medication. They're going to make sure you're stable. And I'm, what I heard in my mind was something completely different. I was like, she doesn't need that. We know what works and what doesn't work. And we're tra- telling you that this current path doesn't work. And I don't think we need to go to the hospital because I know when she, you know, when we first were married, there were times when she was tearing a terry cloth towel with her bare hands. Perhaps I should have taken her to the hospital then. Perhaps. Or when or when she was washing the bathroom tiles, I've told the story many a times, with a toothbrush. Like, mm. perhaps we should have gone to the hospital then. But just the thought circulating in her head right now, and the fact that she can articulate it to me at least, mm-hmm. and say, I'm scared because I'm thinking this. Mm-hmm. To me, I don't know. To me, that doesn't seem like I need to take her to the hospital at that point. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, I know just for me as a therapist, you know, I've, you know, done suicidal assessments many times. And when the moment is actually there, you know, it's never not scary. And I feel like when you're talking to people about how to do this, you have to just be able to say, when you're doing a suicide assessment on somebody, when you're trying to help somebody like that, you are going to be scared. Your knees might be shaking. You know, you're going to be terrified. You're going to fit fail you're going to be scared in a lot of ways go ahead and do it anyway but accept that about yourself well yeah and as and from the owners from the spouse Mm -hmm. perspective i still Mm -hmm. have to go to work i have to smile Mm -hmm. i have to like be public but yet Mm -hmm. in the back of my head i'm like oh my god is my wife going to hurt herself and i think that is when that's the anxiety Mm -hmm. that's the anxiety Right. And you, you really have to prepare people, I think, for the intensity of the situation, just what they're going to feel when they're thinking about, you know, 
asking somebody if they're okay or if they've been thinking about hurting themselves or, you know, when you're actually trying to help somebody that you know is having suicidal thoughts or suicidal urges that that is a really scary discussion to have. Right. Don't wait till you're not scared to ask them because you're never going to be not scared. That's true. Um, And by by asking them or talking about it doesn't mean that that you're encouraging them to follow through with that either. Exactly. You know, like, oh, Mm -hmm. if I just talk about this, then they're going to start thinking about it and perseverate and they'll actually follow through. And it's like, no, actually talking about it helps. It Mm -hmm. does. It does help. And and that was something that Stephen had to learn is that when I talk to him about it, it's not like I'm talking to him about it because I'm starting to form plans. Mm-hmm. It's I'm talking to you about it because I got to get it out of my head. Mm-hmm. I can't just sit with this any longer. You know, it's got to go somewhere and out is the best place for it to go. Yes. Wow. What a great conversation. <laughs> Fantastic. So anybody want to close us off on this topic? We should probably uh, move on pretty soon to kind of the final topic of grief. Yeah, let's move on to grief because we're about 20 minutes out. Yeah. All right. So great discussion. Um, So especially, but not necessarily with COVID-19, how has grief affected you? How does it kind of interact with your mental illness and how are you managing that? And by grief, it could be, you know, somebody's death. It could be some something else about your life that you're grieving. I just really feel for people that, you know, lost someone mm-hmm. during this pandemic and then could not engage in those ceremonies that we're accustomed to, like the funeral and mm-hmm. seeing family. And mm-hmm. because it's just like, you know, it's just horrific to have the inability to visit people in the hospital and then, mm-hmm. you know, if they didn't make it to not even be able to go through that, um, right. you know, closure experience a bit there with one, with, you know, loved ones mm-hmm. around, it's, it was, that's just, you know, a real heartbreak for those individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't imagine how, um, things would have been different if, when my sister passed, my sister passed when I was, when, um, she was 17. Mm-hmm. She was my, she was the baby, and um, that was in 2007. Mm-hmm. That was a year after I was diagnosed with bipolar, and for me, um, it was very difficult at first. Like it, it definitely led me into more manic episodes, mm-hmm. um, where I um, did more things. Like I became depressed, but but I was more manic because I felt like I had to just kind of memorialize her her death in some sort of way. And Mm -hmm. um, it was, I don't know, it was challenging. But I I mean, I'm very thankful that I was able to at least be at the hospital because to to see her pass and to go to her funeral, like that's the normal. But Mm -hmm. just like the other speaker was just saying, to not be able to go to the hospital, to not be able to go to the funeral, I, I don't know how... I would have been able to accept that. Um, like, it's just not the same going on Zoom and watching a funeral. Right. It's just not the same. And, um, yeah. We have thankfully not had any losses close to us um, with COVID-19. But 
when I feel grief, I tend to sit with it too long. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I tend to want to wallow in it. And I don't know if that's just me or if that's the bipolar or God only knows what it is. But yeah, I tend to sit with it too long. I don't, you know, death makes me anxious. You know, um, I, I have had. You get nervous. I ha- I've had two cousins actually die. And I don't think either. Well, one was, I believe. Well, none of it was COVID related. I think one may or may no, not. Butch was COVID related. Yeah, yeah. And my, my my one cousin who passed away passed away alone with COVID. Um, he's schizophrenic. Um, so he came from where he was staying in the home, went to the hospital, and none of his family could be with him when he was dying on his deathbed when he died. Uh, there was a cell phone held up to his head. And when I hear people, especially in this time, talk about COVID's not real, they've never heard they they've never had a loved one just who had to die alone mm-hmm. because of COVID. And I've had two others die during this season that I, you know, grew up with and well, one, well, one I didn't necessarily grow up with, I met later in life, but two, both of them I grew up with, mm-hmm. two out of the three rather. And I can just tell you that when I'm laying in bed at night, I, my anxiety level like quadruples because what happens is, is that I get a, f- I, I don't know what, it's hard to explain. Like I still from a kid can, you know, I get this I'm afraid of death in some ways, I guess. You know, like the spirit part of it. I don't know what's happening. Stephen will never let me live next to a graveyard. Yeah, right. So that's mm-hmm. kind of like how the kind of the perspective I'm coming from. But mm-hmm. itself, and also in my brain, talk about ruminations. Like I'm constantly playing this over that this person died and how they may have died. And my brain like can make up anything. Sometimes, like, you know, sometimes when I'm tired and I can't control my thoughts, you know, that kind of thing, I will ruminate, I'll make up scenarios, I'll make up things. So when someone dies like that, I'll just obsess on it, like, over, and like, literally, I have to like, just snap, I I can snap myself out of it, but I don't like to deal with death. And it's even worse when I have to go to open casket funerals. Mm -hmm. Like, I I just don't do it. So during this time, having this loss during this time. Whether you could actually see the person on the screen or be there or grieve in person, whatever, COVID has disrupted just Mm -hmm. our entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And the grief that we're feeling is probably, at least for me, multiplied because then I can't get it out. I can't have closure. And then I have these crazy things circling, bouncing around in my head sometimes. Well, COVID has taken from us a, a a very big life ritual. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is very ritualistic the way we lay our dead um, to rest mm-hmm. and to take that ritual away from us. You know, it takes away the closure process because we mm-hmm. go through these r- rituals to receive closure. And then when we can't have that, we are kind of left in this limbo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. You said it 100%. That's a very good point. I had a friend who who passed away uh, um, during the COVID and um, the mother wasn't able to attend the funeral. It was a whole challenging issue. She basically, the wife al- allowed only a certain amount of people to come to 